following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to session number 32 of our uh, Mythgard Academy discussion of La Morte d'Arthur. Uh, we are coming towards the very end now, indeed. Uh, the end is in sight. Those, uh, those of you who are registered for the Netmoot session will have received just very recently an email with an update uh, for the, uh, the final... Uh, <clears throat> the final iteration uh, of our class. So uh, here's how it's going to work. We will have tonight and then two more sessions and we are done. We will be finishing Le Morte d'Arthur in two sessions. So on the, what is that, uh, 17th of April, we will be done. So originally I was thinking, okay, so that's it. Like we're done on April 17th. But then I was thinking, you know, we really probably should, many people had suggested it and we probably should uh, talk about Monty Python and the Holy Grail at the end of doing this class. So we'll totally do that. So, however, I'm not going to be here on the week of the 24th of April. Uh, I'm going to be away with my family. I'm going to be in Iceland with my family. So I will certainly not um, uh, be able to broadcast that week. Uh, so, but so the week after that, so May 1st, we will reconvene for one final time in order to discuss Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, as the sort of the culminating session of our long reading of Sir Thomas Mallory. Then we will have one week off on the 8th of May and on the 15th of May, we will begin our next session, which is Sauron defeated, of course, book nine, volume nine in the history of of Middle Earth. So um, that's the plan. That is the road. So I just, I did just update the, the, the time slots uh, for the webinar um, and that it should be the final iteration that will take us through the end of the Mallory session. And then of course we'll have a new one uh, for Sauron defeated after that. So we're, we're, we're getting really close here. Uh, things are coming together just as th things are, Sure, coming together for Lancelot and Guinevere in today's reading. Um, so, anyhow, um, we're gonna um, uh, we'll we'll get there in just a second. Uh, quick note on a couple of announcements and forthcoming things. Next week, we'll still do. I'll still be here for Mythgard Academy next week, um, but immediately afterwards, Thursday morning next week, I'm taking off and going to the Netherlands because it's almost time for Nader Moot, uh, which is going to be so awesome. Uh, our first moot uh, in continental Europe, uh, my first trip ever to the Netherlands. I'm super excited. Uh, so uh, if you know those of you who are in the area or we'll, can pop over to Europe, uh, come join us. It's going to be very, very cool out in Leiden in the Netherlands uh, next Saturday, the 13th of April. Uh, very excited about that. And of course, Myth Moot at the end of June, 27th through the 30th. Uh, hope that many of you will be able to come to Myth Moot. I know that many of you already have registered, uh, which is really great. Um, so that's, of course, our big event of the year down in Leesburg, Virginia. 
And uh, also, upcoming on the 18th of April, um, so the day after we complete our discussion of Maori's Mort Arthur, uh, they're going to have the next Mythgard Movie Club uh, session where they're going to be discussing the film Captive State on the 18th of April. Um, and a final, another reminder that our summer classes are open for registration now. Our, our summer term begins at the beginning of May. Um, so, you know, there's still plenty of time here through the end of April to register for summer courses. If you're interested in that, please do check out our course listings on signumuniversity.org. All right. Those are our, um, whoop, there we go. Those are our, um, uh, announcements for this evening, um, now let's uh, move back uh, into the book. So we were looking; we were in the middle of the uh, fair maid of Astolat section when Sir Lancelot has um, seemed to misstep here. Right? Um, he has um, disguised himself very cunningly, right, by bearing the sleeve of a damsel, which he's never done in his life before, and so therefore very effectively uh, concealed himself from everyone, uh, with, of course, the result that Sir Bors himself, his closest kinsman, well, I mean, he's got a brother, but uh, I don't mean genetically closest kinsman, I mean the one that he is, you know, was just swearing oaths to always be with and everything, um, ended up spearing him in the side and nearly killing him. Um, So, not to mention, of course, that Guinevere was a little bit upset about that. Um, Now, Carita, that's an excellent question. Carita says, am I missing something? Does he have any good reason to need a disguise? Well, it depends on what you would accept as a good reason. Uh, Remember that this is something that's been established for some time, right? That we've seen throughout, certainly through the book of Sir Lancelot uh, way back when, and even through the book of Sir Tristram when Sir Lancelot came wandering through that uh, in, uh, in, 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 in various places. Sir Lancelot has always needed to disguise himself in order... <laughs> okay, so, Karina, I, I was this close to just casually saying in order to get any action, but I realized that might be misconstrued. Um, you know, it, his reputation... It's one thing to achieve great worship, right? It's another thing uh, to have your worship be at such a point that nobody will even face off against you under any circumstances, right? So he has been we've seen we saw him through um, many tournaments uh in the in the uh in the book of in the book of Sir Tristram um we saw um many places where Lancelot was just sidelined basically where he's just like a spectator at every tournament because nobody uh and and you know he won't go in cuz he doesn't want to uh uh skew things he wants to let other people have a chance and yeah it's so he has always had to disguise himself. I mean, since near the very beginning, he's always had to disguise himself in order to be able to do his thing. Now, Carita, if that thing, right, that thing that is his thing that he's trying to do, right, if that begins to seem a little... Well, it's not that it seems shady so much as shallow, right? I mean, it seems a little pointless, does it feel a little pointless to you? I, I think if it does feel a little pointless, I think that's right. Um, especially after the, um, especially after the quest for the Holy Grail, right? 
One of the things that we saw centrally dramatized in the Lancelot bits of the quest for the Holy Grail is that his priorities are wrong, right? He is fully acclimated into this worldly system, this earth, this system of earthly chivalry. Um, you know, again, we saw from the very beginning of Lancelot's adventures back in the book of Sir Lancelot that he was setting himself out to be a different kind of knight. He was setting himself morally and, uh, in a sense, spiritually, aside, apart from the sort of normal knight, right? The kind of uh, 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 mainstream culture, which he was uh, critical of, um, uh, rightly critical of in many ways. What was revealed to us and to, more importantly, to Sir Lancelot during the quest for the Holy Grail is that he, far from, in fact, succeeding in setting himself aside, uh, in uh, uh, seeking and achieving a higher moral goal um, than the -the run-of-the-mill mainstream chivalry, um, he is like the embodiment of mainstream chivalry, right? That uh, he is... um, He has, like, defined the mainstream, and it kept steering him wrong. Of course, very notably in the famous case of the White Knights and Black Knights uh, in that uh, allegorical tournament whose allegory he utterly missed um, in uh, uh, the quest for the Holy Grail. Uh, We've seen that when it has come to holy things, when... uh, when what was at stake is not worldly worship, is not earthly glory, but rather holiness, um, really doing the right thing, right? Fighting for the right side. We found that he was not fighting for God. He was fighting for himself, right? He was not doing what's right. He was doing what would look best for him, right? Um, ultimately, the, 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 the sort of... So, so Karita, in that sense... When we see him kind of carrying on in that way, and, and that is how I characterize, uh, or rather, that's how I understand his concealing of himself, right? Um, notice how he's... Th- there are two things that his um, participations in the tournaments that we see happening in this section have in common, right? One is that he's always disguising himself, and two, he's always fighting on the wrong side, right? He's always fighting against King Arthur, which is beginning to look a little ominous, right? I mean, he, he doesn't mean any harm, and it's all good, right? Every time King Arthur finds out who he really is, right, he'll kind of chide him for it, but then he's like, oh, but it's all good. You proved yourself again, Sir Lancelot. Let's have a party and feast together, right? Arthur doesn't hold any grudges. It's all fine. It's not a real red flag, you know, politically speaking, or anything like that. Um, but again, what it does establish is this trend, Lancelot keeps fighting on the wrong side. He is—he has not managed to actually... Cha- he, he hasn't really learned yet the lesson that he was being taught in the quest for the Holy Grail. That seems, um, that seems fairly clear, I think, at this point. Um, and yes, Karita, I think that that is right. And again, you know, Karita, we've you know, at many points in the book, right, we've been having these kinds of discussions. Like when we respond to something, asking ourselves, like, okay, is that, um, is this just us, right? Is this our modern sensibilities coming in here? Or, or you know, do, is the text really sort of cueing us to have these particular reactions? That's always a really tricky conclusion to try to come to. So, Karita, the question of his treatment of Elaine, 
right? Elaine of Astolat, not the other Elaine. That's another question, right? Um, but his treatment of Elaine of Astolat, um, how shabby is his treatment of her, right? His agreement to where, uh, you know, his leading her on, uh, as we saw last time, fair, kind of egregiously, actually, um, both in deed and in word, um, how, how justified are we, essentially, in uh, being critical of that? Um, and, but, Karita, I think the point that you make there is a very good one. Uh, Karita says, for someone whose whole shtick is supposed to be service to ladies, right, uh, it's uh, pretty shabby of him to use this girl as a cheap disguise in order to benefit himself solely, right, uh, with no other end in mind other than to increase his own glory. Yes, I agree. I, I, I think that, in my mind, there is very little question. One of the things that we are given, and we're going to, this is where we're going to begin here as we go back to the text. One of the things that we're given in this passage, in the latter parts of this passage, right, is a contrast between Elaine on the one hand and Lancelot on the other hand, right? Um, what do we see in their attitudes? What do we see in their whole approach to this complicated situation? Um, and it's, Lancelot does not look good here. I think there's no, there's really no question about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Carrie, that's exactly Lancelot's rationale, right? You know, if, you're, if your friends are the best, right? I mean, King Arthur's and his Knights of the Round Table, especially if Lancelot is with them, they're just going to mop the floor with everybody else, right? So that would be boring. And honestly, Carrie, I think that this is exactly why King Arthur doesn't mind, right? King Arthur never... Because it's more sporting. It's more interesting, right? I mean, everybody kind of enjoys it more when things don't go exactly according to plan and they're faced with a, a, a really interesting challenge, you know, of having Lancelot and Levain and Sir Gareth, um, you know, the, 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 the loyal and dutiful Sir Gareth who switches sides in order to uh, 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 faithfully stay by Lancelot's side. You know, that's... Um, when that happens, it makes the whole tournament more fun and interesting, right? And Arthur seems to like that. He seems to appreciate that. Um, but but the problem is there's there's more going on, right? Like, it's... That was okay. I, I, I really think that that was okay. I, you know, I don't see anything in the text. Again, the example I keep coming back to, right, is that moment when Tristram and Palamides and Sir Gareth and Sir Dinadan were going to the tournament at Lanazep, and they were like, which side should we join in? And Sir Palamides was like, we should join the weaker side because that would be best. And everyone's like, absolutely, Sir Palamides. That's the... And everyone approves of that, right? I mean, the whole text rings with approval of that decision, you know, that suggestion by Sir Palamides in their initial choice. So carrying exactly that way, if it were, you know, 200 pages ago, what Lancelot's doing here would not only be normal, it would seem commendable. This is, again, one of the consequences of the quest for the Holy Grail, as I was talking about before. Once the quest for the Holy Grail happens, nothing is the same after that. Nothing looks the same, right? 
um, the Holy Grail has been a kind of touchstone which sort of reveals the true value of things, right? It's one of the things I think that we see happening in the text. And so even though we have the same kinds of things happening for the same kinds of reasons and as we did, and we were okay with it, everybody seemed okay with it before, it doesn't feel okay anymore. Um, and I think that's, um, that's troubling. Stephen, that's exactly the issue, right? Um, allegorically, you don't want to balance out the wrong side against the right, right? If the, if the good guys are, you know, have, have the advantage, you don't want to counterbalance that. That's just wrong, right? I, I mean, it's just, it becomes, well, a black and white issue at that point, right? Um, anyway, um, let's, um, let's move Let's move forward. Um, uh, let's look at the let's let's look at Elaine and see what we can learn here. And and one of the things I want to focus on is not just the question of why Lancelot fights and the, the, that stuff is all very important. But I want to be looking at the question of 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 love. In particular, again, remembering back that that really important passage we looked at so long ago, Lancelot's speech, right, about why he wasn't going to love anybody, paramours, why he wasn't going to get married, right, what would ha- what happens to people when you love par- uh, paramours and stuff. One of the questions, therefore, has been, okay, so what's good, right? What's what what is. There is virtuous love, right? It's not like love is bad. Um, and, you know, we got glimpses of that before. Remember, you know, good old, delightful, innocent, naive Sir Percival, right? Uh, speaking with great praise for the love between Tristan and Isolde, right? Because it's, there's a version of that, which is fine. It, he was wrong, right? It was not, in fact, the virtuous version um, in the case of Tristan and Isolde. But, um, I. But the concept is clearly there, right? So what do we see? This is, of course, going to be um, super important as we approach the big moment with Lancelot and Guinevere here. Um, Anyway, okay, back to Elaine. So Sir Bors finally finds... So Gawain, through Gawain's efforts, and we looked at that in the delightful moment when Elaine's dad forbids Sir Gawain to go to her bedchamber uh, to see Sir Lancelot's shield. Anyway, word gets around and Bors figures out where uh, Lancelot is, right? And so Lancelot, Bors goes to Lancelot and discovers the truth of this whole thing. What's up with the sleeve? Why did you disguise yourself? That was really dumb. And uh, and And coming and giving him word from the court, right? So here's Lancelot, bedridden Lancelot, right, talking to Sir Bors. Than is the queen wroth, said Sir Lancelot. Therefore am I wreaked heavy, but I deserve it no wrath, for all that I did was because I would not be known. Notice Lancelot's like, I was just, like, I was disguising myself. Like, that's a thing. It's not only a thing, it's a normal thing, right? It's just a disguise. Come on, relax. Sir, reeked so excused I you, said Sir Bors, but all was in vain, for she sighed more largelier to me than I to you say now. <laughs> I'm not really doing justice to, to how mad she is, right? I've given you the gist of the thing, but believe me, it was, uh, she used more adjectives than I'm using, okay? Um, but, Sir, <clears throat> 
But, sir, is this she, sighed Sir Boris, that is so busy about you, that men call the fair maiden of Astolat? Forsooth, she it is, sighed Sir Launcelot, that by no means is I cannot put her from me. Why should ye put her from you, sighed Sir Bors, for she is a passing fire damsel, and well besign and well taught, and God walled fair cousin, sighed Sir Bors, that ye could love her, but as to that I may not nother dar not I, I, I may not nother dar not counsel you, but I see well, sighed Sir Bors, by her diligence about you, that she loveth you entirely. That me repenteth, sighed Sir Launcelot. Well, sighed Sir Bors, she is not the fairest that hath lost her pine upon you, and that is the more pity. Um, <laughs> I see <laughs> Karina politely uh, uh, differing from Sir Lancelot on the degree to which he deserves wrath. <laughs> Here, I hear that. I do. I hear that. Um, uh, so, Sir Bors's intervention here is interesting. He's extremely tentative here, as you can see, right? I, um, I may not, nor dare not, counsel you on this, right? I'm not advising you, but he can't help but notice. He's like, so, okay, so this is the girl whose sleeve you wore, right? And Bors looks at this, and he's like, y you know, there's a, an attractive option here, Right? If you were to actually, bear with me, love back this girl who loves you completely, and she's awesome. I mean, she's she's not just, notice that Elaine is behaving towards Lancelot, not just like a good lover. She's behaving towards him like a good wife. Right? I mean, she's tending his wounds here, right? She's the devotion with which she comes after him. There's this is something that I don't um I don't know. It's kind of hard to convey. It's one of those things that like you sort of have to read a lot of medieval romance to be able to feel this. Elaine is different, right? The way there are lots of moonstruck ladies in medieval romance, needless to say, right? And there are many ladies who are held up as like the paragons of, you know, courtly lovers, right? They don't act like this. How Elaine acts towards Lancelot, the, the, not just the degree of devotion that she shows him, but the quality, the kind of devotion that she shows him, the kind of genuine selflessness, selflessness, not a very frequent characteristic of ideal courtly lovers who are usually extremely self-absorbed, to be perfectly frank, right? They're always talking about their own feelings, right? She is very humbly focused on him. She... Again, it's just, it's different. The kind of love, the way that she manifests love for him. Um, I, he looks at her and he doesn't just say... Um, uh, hey, she's really cute, right? He does point out that she's really cute, but he's clearly looking at her and saying, 
look, this is actually, this could be a really good thing. And the thing that he does not, that he must not and dare not say explicitly, but which he's implying pretty darn heavily is, okay, so, you know, this actually is so much better than this sort of clandestine, increasingly shady relationship with Guinevere, right? Like, it's fairly clear that your relationship with Guinevere is headed in the in in a in the wrong direction, right? Um, really, no good can come of that. But he's looking at Elaine, and he's like, you know, good could come of this. There is a sense in which Bors is very gently, very discreetly presenting Lancelot with a um, an important choice. Lancelot doesn't feel that he's coming to a fork in the road here, but he is coming to a fork in the road here. He has, he has a chance. He has a chance here. And this is one of the places where I think this, uh, her name, the significance of her name really strikes me, right? That is the fact that it's the same name as the other Elaine, right? Uh, who was the mother of Galahad there too. There was an option, right there too. Lancelot could have actually chosen Elaine, right? And he, like, did end up when he was Le Chevalier Malfet, right? He, 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 he kind of did settle down with Elaine for a while um, when he was in this sort of self-proclaimed... Well, okay, Guinevere exiled him too, but then he sort of exiled himself as well, right, uh, for a while. Um, but he didn't commit to it, and, right, and he returned, as he keeps doing. He returned back to the court, goes away for the Holy Grail and says he won't come back, but then he comes back again, right? Um... There are, there are options. His option, originally, again, back in the old days, back to his original love speech, right? His choice was between not loving, just avoiding that whole thing, right? I am not going to participate in this whole game. I'm not going to love anybody, Paramours. I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to be different, right? Well, that hasn't panned out, right? But there's a really viable plan B, or there was a really viable plan B, which was Elaine number one, right? Now here comes Elaine number two, and she is a really viable plan C, right? And in many ways, she is his last best hope. Should he choose Elaine here, is Guinevere going to be mad? Yeah, Guinevere is going to be mad. But you know what? Um, if he goes this way... There's plenty of reason to think that the collapse of Arthur's court doesn't happen. It certainly doesn't happen the way that it ends up happening, right? Um, his path towards doom, right, towards being the cause ultimately of the downfall of the Arthurian court, this is a moment which is easy to kind of overlook, right? Because again, Bors is, doesn't even say it explicitly, right? But. Um, but this is a choice that Lancelot has, and without really considering it, right, he's still just thinking about Guinevere. And, of course, Carita, as you point out, even more than he's thinking about Guinevere, he's thinking about himself, right? Like a regular courtly lover, right? Like one who is not, in fact, different from the mainstream courtly lover, who has not set himself aside from that whole thing at all. The more time goes on, the more, like a traditional courtly lover in some ways, he is feeling. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, uh, Matthew Hershenroder says now he's feeling echoes of Turin and Finduilas. Uh, y- yeah, in some ways, yeah, the, like the, you know, the positive option that like you really could have, should have chosen, but you didn't, right? Um, oh, in some ways, Lancelot has more excuse than Turin, but I want to get into that comparison too much further. Um, but, um, but yeah, um, yeah. Um, Karita, there's no question Elaine is a better lover than Lancelot is. No question. And again, that's, I think, the interesting contrast here, to look at what love... In Elaine's world, what is love? What does love mean, right? What is the the power and essence of love in Elaine's world? What does it mean to Lancelot now, right? Which is different, it seems, from... At least by his actions, it's different from what it used to be. Um, Let's... um, uh, let's keep going. That is the more pity. And so, yeah, Carrie's wondering if this is the first time that Bohr has suggested a solution like this. I don't know. I mean, it kind of sounds like it because Bohr's is new to this. It's certainly the first time he suggested this with Elaine number two, right? But uh, has he suggested something like this before? It's possible. That is the more pity suggests that he has been thinking this for a while, right? Um, if you're going to do the courtly lover thing after all Lancelot maybe we could revise our strategy here <laughs> maybe maybe not Guinevere that's all I'm saying right perhaps we can find a um, perhaps we can find a better option um, this is the passage more than anything else um, when I talk about Elaine being different um, from like your traditional medieval romance courtly lover, um, this is the passage that to me jumps out more than anything else. So you'll remember there's this like really stupid testosterone moment that Bors and Lancelot have, right? Bors comes in and he tells him, oh, there's this tournament that's going to be going on pretty soon. And Lancelot's like, well, I'm feeling a lot better, right? Uh, why don't we test it out? I'm going to get into, I'm going to, I'm going to go like, against medical advice, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put on my armor, AMA, and I'm going to get on my horse and I'm going to, uh, you know, just try to see, you know, see if I'm strong enough for that tournament, right? Uh, and of course, then his wound breaks back open, right, and bursts out and bleeding. And therewith, he fell down on the own side to the earth like a dead corpse, and th- which means corpse, by the way. And Thon, Sir Borders, and Sir Levine come unto him with sorrow mocking out of measure. And so by fortune, this maiden, Elaine, heard their mourning. And then she come, and when she found Sir Launcelot there armed in that place, she cried and wept as she had been wooed. And then she kissed him and did what she meek to, awa- to awake him. And then she rebuked her brother and Sir Bors, and called him false traitors, and said, Why wold ye talk him out of his bed? For an he die, I will appeal you of his death. And so with that came the Eremite, Sir Baudwin of Bretagne, and one he found Sir Launcelot in that plight. He said but little, but wit you well he was wroth. <laughs> Physicians will understand this point of view. Sir Baudwin of Bretagne finding himself in the position that so many physicians have found themselves in over the centuries. Anyway, <laughs> said but little, but wit you well he was wroth. But he sighed. 
Let us have him in. And anon they bar him into the Eremitage, and unarmed him, and lied him in his bed, and evermore his wound bled spitiously, but he stirred no limb of him. Then the knicked, the knicked armit, put a thing in his nose, and a little deal of water in his mouth, and then Sir Launcelot walked of his swoch, and than the Eremit stounched of his bleeding, and when Sir Launcelot meek spake, he asked why he put his life so in jeopardy. Sir, sighed Sir Launcelot, because I went I had been strong enough, and also Sir Bors told me there should be at all Hallowmas a great justice betwixt King Arthur and the King of North Gallus, and therefore I thought to assigh myself whether I meeked be there or not. Um, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Kareen is speculating that the hermit said little because none of it would have been Jesus approved. Yes, exactly. There's uh, uh, the uh, the the what the hermit said or wanted to say would have been represented by random punctuation symbols, presumably. Um, yes, Elaine's reaction here, right? Not just her bursting out in weeping upon seeing Lancelot hurt, right? But her wrath, and I can't. Um, Coming as soon as it does. <coughs> Sorry. After the previous passage, right, where Lancelot and Bors are talking about, is the queen wroth, right? Is Guinevere angry at me? Oh, like the drama, right? The Oh, the, the like the courtly love games that Guinevere and I are playing and like, oh, I was wearing another maiden's uh, uh, sleeve and wish it bow, but it was just a disguise, right? No, it means nothing. Why should she be mad? And then here's Elaine, wroth, right? Um... Uh, uh, you know, uh, and um, her wrath here, right? The difference in substance, right? In substantiveness between Elaine's wrath here and Guinevere's wrath, which Bors is reporting before. Again, just to me, throws their two attitudes into such stark relief, right? Um, She is trying... She and the hermit, right? The she and she and the physician are both trying to take care of Lancelot and do what's best for him, right? And then it's being thwarted by, and she's furious at them. Lancelot sort of assumed, right? Why is he kind of off-put or arguing that Guinevere shouldn't be mad? Because she knows how the game is played, right? He feels like he's being criticized for, like, playing the game, right? Well, no, I mean, I was there. I disguised myself. It's how this works, right? Besides, remember the conversations they'd been having about the whole, like, people are kind of getting suspicious. Some slander and rumors are starting to go about, right? So my disguise was a genius disguise, right? Not only because it effectively disguised me for the sake of the tournament, which was pretty cool, except for the whole near-death thing, but... It also, of course, you know, now, like, Gawain thinks that Lancelot's in love with, you know, Elaine number two, right? So that's a good thing, right? So now it's less likely that any kind of rumors or slander about Lancelot and Guinevere is going to get any traction, right? So, again, like, Lancelot's like, I'm playing the game, right? This is how it works. She's, like, not getting it, right? She needs to... Elaine's not playing the game, right? She is just trying to take care of him. Um, and, uh, 
again, it's just the, the, the contrast between the perspective of Guinevere and the perspective of Elaine is to me really striking here. Um, okay. The final, I almost said confrontation. That's not really the right word. The final conversation between Elaine and Lancelot. Lancelot's going to go, right? It's time for him to leave. And so upon the morn, one Sir Lancelot shall depart. Fire Elaine brought her father with her. Remember, her father is with her throughout this conversation. Brought her father with her, and Sir Levine and Sir Tire, her two brothers. And then thus she sighed. My lord Sir Launcelot, now I see ye, ye will depart from me. Now fire knicked and curtice knicked, sighed she. Have mercy upon me, and suffer me not to die for your love. Why, what would you that I did? sighed Sir Launcelot. Sir, I will have you to my husband, sighed Elaine. That's where her mind is, right? Now, remember... Again, if you come at this text from a, like, post-Jane Austen point of view, right? I mean, if you're thinking that, uh, um, you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged, right, that all uh, uh, Curtis uh, 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 and Fire Kniktis uh, must be in want of a wife, you're, look, you're coming at it wrong, right? Um, this is not the way it normally works, Um uh, proposals of marriage, that's not how this game is played. Elaine's plan A, right? Sir, I will have you to my husband, is almost as countercultural as Lancelot's old declaration, right? Not to love anybody paramour. Um, this is not how courtly love romances proceed. Of course, they also normally don't move forward in the presence of the ladies, husband, and brothers. Indeed, normally, the husband and brothers are precisely the people whom you are most attempting to circumvent, right, when you're trying to, you know, have a serious conversation with your lady or the the woman that you're trying to convince to become your lady. Um, the father's presence would normally be particularly embarrassing uh, in that kind of... Uh, in that kind of instance. Um, Fair damsel, I thank you heartily, sighed Sir Launcelot, but truly, sighed he, I cast me never to be wedded man. Then, Fair Knecht, she said, will ye be my paramour? She says that right in front of her dad. Jesu, defend me, sighed Sir Launcelot, for then I rewarded your father and your brother, who are standing right there, full evil for their great goodness. Alas, then, said she, I must die for your love. Ye shall not do so, said Sir Launcelot, for wit you well, fair maiden, I meeked have been married, and I had wold, but I never applied me yet to be married. But because, fair damsel, that ye love me as ye say ye do, I wold for your good will and kindness, show beset, so beset, no, oh, sorry, hang on a second. I'm getting this wrong. Um, hmm. I think I think there must be something wrong here. I think I think I messed this up. Uh, for your goodwill and kindness, um, 
He's talking about, if you beset your heart upon some knecht that will wed you, I shall give you to Gidders, that is you and your future husband, a thousand pound yearly to you and to your iris. This much will I give you, fire maiden, for your kindness, and always while I live to be your own knecht. Seer, of all this, sighed the maiden, I will none, but for if ye will wed me, other to be my paramour at the least, with you well, Sir Launcelot, my good dies are done. All right. Um, so let's see. So Tomas is asking, was such a proposition more socially acceptable in the high Middle Ages? What, will ye be my paramour? Um, no. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, like, it's normal, right? But it's not okay. <laughs> you don't do this in front of her dad, right? I mean, he's like awkward. Jesus, defend me, right? That's like, um, wait, I can't believe we're having this conversation right in front of your dad. No, no, I'm not going to be your clandestine or, or non clandestine lover. Um, the, um, the money here, a couple things that I would emphasize about this a thousand pounds a year in the 15th century is a massive quantity of money. That is an enormous, enormous sum of money. Um, I can't thinking of Jane Austen. That is like Mr. Darcy money right there. Okay. Um, a thousand pounds yearly, man, that is like a, not quite a King's ransom. Um, there were king's ransoms being paid around this period, and there are more than that. Uh, but still, that is an enormous, enormous amount of money. Um, what's the significance of this, right? What does this mean? I, I, I take a fairly generous view of Lancelot's proffer here to Elaine. Um, it's easy. I, I, I totally understand if this sounds crass. Um, you know, if this sounds like... Um, I know there, there are a couple of you I know who find the idea, like him trying to pay her off, kind of insulting. Um, I don't think that's the attitude here. Um, again, first of all, for one thing, the quantity of money here, this is, a, this is not a, like, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to offer you hush money, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, going to try to just give you some money and make you go away. Um, this is a huge, huge deal that he is suggesting here. And I, that, I think, is a signal of his... He's trying to do something really big and notice what he's doing notice what he's doing right he's saying i will endow you and your future like i i want you to get married right and notice what he emphasizes right not just like here take this money and with that money you can you know have anybody you want right because you'll be rich so i mean it's, um he talks about where she will beset her heart upon some good night, right? I believe, and I, you know, I, I might be wrong, I might be being a sucker here, but I think Lancelot is trying to do a version of the right thing here, right? He is telling her, 
I want you to be happy, right? I, I do. I want you to be, you, it can't be with me, right? I can't do that. I can't marry you. I can't, I'm not going to just be your lover, right? Cause that's obviously wrong. Um, I can't do either one of those things, but, um, but I want you to be happy and I hope that you will find somebody and to show you like my commitment to this, like, idea, right? Uh, like to, to, to try to express how uh, emphatically I desire to endorse your future happiness with somebody else, right? Um, how much I want to see you, ha- I want to see you happily settled with, with a good knight whom you love and who loves you. And, um, and I will bestow this like massive, massive estate upon you, uh, in order to see you guys all really, um, really, uh, happy. Right. Um, now when I say I'm trying to be generous to Lancelot here, I'm not trying to argue that he's not missing the point because uh, he is missing the point. Right. Um, again, this scene shows really clearly the difference between his perspective and hers. Right. I think that his intentions are good. But nevertheless, making the offer, however well-intentioned, however generous the offer may be, um, he is showing that he doesn't get it. What he doesn't get is her love, the quality of her love, the nature of her love, the depth and sincerity of her love. He doesn't get that, right? Um, Now... Yeah. Um, Brian says the generosity of the author certainly makes the presence of her father in the conversation a little less awkward. Yeah, in some ways. In some ways, you know, I, I think that he's... Uh, uh, is her father part of the intended audience of that speech? Yes, I think so. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um Carrie, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, Lancelot's older. He's trying to redefine her attachment to him to keep it in measure, right? Don't love me out of measure. Um, I can't return your love. It's not going to work out. But, you know, nobody has to die. Um, you're still young. You'll there. You'll find a good knight who will wed you, and you guys will be happy, and I will be there to, like make you guys like rich, happy, comfortable and content for your whole lives because I am enthusiastically in support of you being happy, even though it can't be with me. Um, Brian is asking, is he perhaps feeling guilty for having led Elaine on? Yes. Is there, is the money that he's offering her, uh, almost something like it's not exactly. And this is a dangerous thing to say. It's almost like where guild, right? Um, an acknowledgement, like, I, I, you know, yeah, um, I can't just walk away, right? It would be wrong for him just to be like, sorry, honey, I'm out, right? Uh, thanks, but no thanks. Appreciate the bedside attendance, right? That was, that was sweet and everything, but I gotta go. Um, it's been real. He can't just do that, right? Uh, I think, Brian, that there is an acknowledgement on his side that, that he has some, uh, responsibility here, right? He, uh, uh, he owes her something. What she wants, 
and what, in a sense, he owes her, what he almost promised her, right, by accepting her token, he can't give. But he's not just walking out, either. Um, yeah. Now, Carita, you're absolutely right that um, we should remember Lancelot early in the book, right? Lancelot having incredibly beautiful ladies throw themselves at him uh, and try to get him to be her paramour. It's like, remember, daily occupational hazard for Lancelot, right? I mean, scarcely a week goes by that he's not captured by some sorceress or other who wants to, you know, be his paramour in one state or another, right? Uh, This is Lancelot's life, right? So... And this kind of thing has never happened. And again, one of the things we've never seen before is any of them offering to marry him, right? Um, That's what she wanted. Um, And her approach to him was different, and uh, his response to her was different. Remember, it's even different from Elaine number one. Elaine number one wanted to sleep with him. Because she had to beget Galahad. I mean, she had this weird family duty, right? She's from, like, the Holy Grail family, and she, like her job is to, is to uh, conceive and bear the Holy Grail knight, right? Um, so, like, she, like, having sex with him was the whole goal, right? Now, she loved him, too, and could they have been happy? And, you know, maybe. But, again, that was just, like, a different flavor of weird. And in some ways, more like the old days of, you know, waking up in sorceress's houses. There was even a sorceress involved, as you'll recall. Um, but uh, lane number two is different, right? Here we just have a sweet, innocent, um, honest, straightforward, uh, 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 genuinely devoted maiden who wants to marry him. Um, and there is no good reason why he should, as Bors was gently, indirectly pointing out, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and yet, Brian, I do think, uh, you know, Brian says Lancelot will be thinking that this is the best he can possibly do for her, given that he has no desire to love her. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, I do think if you accept Lancelot's framework, right, that he can't possibly marry her, he cannot possibly be her lover, this is, I mean, what he offers her is like, I mean, it is the best thing he possibly could. It is the equivalent. I mean, remember like all those lands and castles he was bestowing on people like Sir Lakot Mautau and, and, and the others, right? This is like the equivalent of that kind of thing. He's like, I will be your patron like I was Sir Gareth's patron, like I was Sir Lakot Mautau's patron, right? I, you know, the, uh, the, he's, he's doing good the way that he has done good before. The problem is in that framework, right? The problem is he's not questioning that framework. As Sir Bors was inviting him to do, hey, wait, wild and crazy idea. Maybe give the whole Guinevere thing a rest, right? And just, you know, consider it. Briefly consider it. Actually having a relationship with this girl. Um, Because her love is a good sort of love. Her love... Her love seems to be virtuous love, right? Um, Even when she offers to be his paramour, which is not virtuous, right? It's like a a desperation move, right? She would rather be his wife 
if his paramour is the only thing she can be, she's willing to go there, right? But her love is virtuous love. But now she's going to die, right, if he doesn't love her. And I forget who it was. It was somebody a while back was saying that, um, you know, that that's kind of playing the game, right? Like, I'm going to die if you won't love me. Yes. Um, that is threatening that is normal. Now, but, but, but hang on. Normally, it's the guy who delivers that line. That is the, like, you want to know what the oldest pickup line is in medieval romance? That's the oldest pickup line. The oldest, most uh, cliched pickup line in medieval romance is, uh, my lady, you must bestow your love upon me because if not, I'm going to die, right? And then my blood will be on your hands and you'll be a murderess and you wouldn't want that on your conscience for the rest of your life. I know that you don't really want to sleep with me because you'd be worried that like that's sinful and you would be guilty and your husband would be mad and or your father or someone, people will be mad, you know, other people if they find out about it. Um, but just think how much worse you'll feel if you become a murderess, right? So adulter, adultery is so much less of a big deal than murder. Right? This is the, this is, that's literally the oldest pickup line in medieval romance. It's the girl who's delivering it, though. And I think we know Elaine well enough by now to know she's not... This isn't a line, right? She's not trying to manipulate him. Um, uh, she's not trying to manipulate him. Um, yeah. Here's the really interesting speech. So, Lancelot leaves. Sir Levine, her brother, goes with him. Elaine proceeds to die, right? She stops eating. Um... And she is on her deathbed. And her confessor, right, she's receiving last rites on her deathbed. And um, she's still talking about Lancelot and loving Lancelot and be, like saying like she has to die because Lancelot won't love her back. And her confessor says, is encouraging her to leave such thoughts, right? Now, her confessor's line of thinking here is completely uh, like orthodox and normal. Right. Okay. Look, Elaine, look, girl, you're on your deathbed, right? You are facing eternity right now. Uh, you're, you know, the, the, you are hours away from the pearly gates. Let's leave that like romance stuff aside. That's not what's important right now. And let's focus instead on eternal verities, shall we? Right. Um, and this is Elaine's response. Why should I leave such thoughtis? Am I not an earthly woman? And all the while the breath is in my body, I may complain me. For my belief is, and that's an important word, for my belief is that I do none offence, though I love an earthly man unto God, for he formed me thereto, and all manner of good love cometh of God. And other than good love, loved I never Sir Launcelot du Lac. And I tuck God to record, I love it never none but him, nor never shall, of earthly creature. And a clean maiden I am for him and for all other. And sithen it is the sufferance of God that I shall die for so noble a knicht, 
I beseech thee, High Father of heaven, have mercy upon me and my soul, and upon mine innumerable pines that I suffer may be allegiance of part of my sinners. For sweet Lord Jesus, sighed the fair maiden, I talk God to record, I was never to thee great offencer, nother against thy lawes, but that I loved this noble knight Sir Launcelot out of measure. And of myself, good Lord, I had no meeked to withstand the fervent love, wherefore I have my death. Um, now, Michelle's asking, would she uh, be considered to be endangering her soul as a suicide? If she is committing suicide, that's very bad all by itself, right? Um, it does say that she doesn't eat anything. There is good reason to believe that Elaine's death does not count as a suicide, that we should not think of it as a suicide. Again, I think that we have some pretty clear directions from the text to say this is not a suicide, right? And I'll come back to that in a second. Karita, uh, uh, we're going to come back. That's where, where we come into the, uh, the exchange you and I just had on Twitter a couple hours ago. Um, but let's look at her little confession here first, right? Note her emphasis here. My belief is that I do non-offense, though I love an earthly man unto God, for he formed me thereto, and all manner of good love cometh of God. Okay, um, I said believe is a really important word there, right? Um, Steve and I agree she would not be receiving last rites if it were considered a suicide. That by itself. Uh, the confessor is clearly, well, he clearly is not drawing that conclusion that she is committing suicide. At the same time, he is uh, clearly a little uneasy about this whole I'm dying for love thing, right? Um, yeah, now, we're going to get there, uh, James, but let's start here at the beginning. Believe. Tell me about that word. Where do you recognize that word from? Where do we see that word all the time? Who had particularly strong belief? Remember where we saw that? Yes. Galahad and Percival also. Right? Percival was singled out for being a knight of especially strong believer. Believer means faith. But more, it also means like the creed, right? Your creed, like to know your creed, to, to know the creed is your believer, right? Um, when she says, my believer is, she's saying, this is my, this is my creed, right? This is what, th- th- these, I, I, I hold these truths to be self-evident, right? <laughs> is what, is what Elaine is saying when she says, for my believer. She's not saying, it's my opinion. Right? It doesn't mean belief like in that sense. There's nothing tentative about this. She's not saying, my personal opinion, and you may differ, is that. That's like almost the opposite of what she's saying. Right? She's saying, my rock-solid faith. I believe in this like Percival and Galahad believed uh, you know, in, uh, the, in, 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 in Jesus and in the transubstantiation. Right? The, their business with the Holy Grail. Right? This is Elaine's Holy Grail. Right. My belief is that I do non offense, 
though I love an earthly man. So now again, here's another important word, which again, another word that should really jump out to us in the post Holy Grail word, earthly, right? I love an earthly man, right? Earthly, an important word. She loves an earthly man, not a heavenly man. She's not in love with Sir Galahad, right? She's not trying to sleep with Sir Galahad. Lancelot's an earthly man. And she loves him according to the way, like, God made men and women to love each other, she says, right? That's, this is, it's supposed to happen this way. There's nothing wrong with that. And truly, in as much as her uh, intention, right, her was marriage, she's absolutely correct. She's not some skanky, courtly love lady, right? Not at all. I don't do any offense for loving Lancelot. It's not, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. God made me to love an earthly man. And all manner of good love cometh of God. Right? God made me this way. My love is godly love. It is even holy. There's nothing wrong with it. Remember that in the Catholic Middle Ages, pre-Reformation, marriage is also a sacrament. Right? It's not just okay, right? It is a sacrament. It is a sacred, a holy thing. Um, and other than good love, loved I never Sir Launcelot du Lac. There is good love and there is bad love. There is virtuous love and there is unvirtuous love. Her love for Lancelot was good love, was virtuous love. She is not ashamed of it. She's she is so unashamed of it that she is going to assert it to her confessor on her deathbed, right? It's fine, right? And and notice how the like the the evidence she proceeds to give, right? I take God to record, right? Like I, you know, God is my witness. I never loved anybody else, right? So this is not like a a thing with me. Like I'm just loving every earthly man who comes along, right? That's not that's not the kind of love that God formed you to, right? Uh, my love is is has been is devoted, right? I never loved anyone else but him, or never shall of earthly creature, of earthly creature again. She's not saying I'm I, I'm not idolizing him. I'm not placing him above God. I'm not worshiping him as if he were my God. He's just an earthly man, right? And I'm an earthly woman, and uh, and therefore I I was made in such a way that I'm supposed to love an, another earthly creature, right? Nothing wrong with that. And I'm a clean maiden, right? We didn't sleep together. This was, there was nothing, nothing unchaste about my love for him at all. Or our relationship. And for all other, right? I can just, like, I'm, I'm, she is a perfectly chaste maiden, despite the fact that she's dying of love for Lancelot right now, right? And Sithen, it is the sufferance of God that I shall die for so noble a knecht. Since it is the sufferance of God, since God has decided to let this happen, right? God has, she's taking the adventure that God is bringing her, right? She doesn't use that phrase, um, but she's saying this is, this is the way, this is the way her path has been laid, right? She has nothing to regret in loving Lancelot. She's done nothing wrong. Her love is pure. Her love is virtuous. Her love is good. The circumstances are such that 
it can't be fulfilled. And she can't resist it, she says. Right? Um, I take God to record, she says again, I was never to thee great offenser. Right? I, I, I haven't been a great, it's like, a, you know, my love is pure and I've not been like a really big sinner in other respects, right? Against God's laws. But that I love this noble knight out of measure. Maybe I do love him too much. And of myself, good Lord, she's addressing God directly here. I have no meek to withstand the fervent love, wherefore I have my death. I can't help it. I can't help it. I can't turn this. I'm not strong enough to turn this aside. Is it out of measure? Yeah, probably. Um, uh, yeah. And yes, James, this is where the out of measure thing is the same thing as Lancelot and Guinevere, right? But again, notice the difference in context here. Out of measure means too much, right? Um, and to that extent, Elaine admits that's the only thing that's questionable about her love is that probably it's too strong. It's too much. But even that is sort of said humbly, like, I can't, I'm not strong enough. I can't help it. This is the situation that I'm put in. I can't do anything else. Um, David, yeah, uh, asks, what about the part where she asks if Lancelot will at least be her paramour? Was that a sinful request? I.e., would it have been sinful had Lancelot accepted? Yes, it would have been. It would have been for them to have loved each other, Paramore. For if Lancelot's like, marry you? No, 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 I can't. And she's like, will you love me, Paramore? And he's like, oh, what, like, come by for the occasional booty call? Sure, yeah, okay, yeah, no, yeah, by all means, let's do that. And she's like, okay, great, if I can't marry you, then at least we can do that. Yes, that would have been sinful. And again, I think that's a reflection of, of she's confessing she's loved him out of measure, right? Had her love for Lancelot, in fact, led her to do that, then she would have transgressed. She would not have been able to make this whole speech because she wouldn't be a clean maiden for him, right, uh, when it comes to that. Uh, notice she's... she she. So there is a sense, right, in which Lancelot has... Lancelot's refusal, a very strong refusal, which I don't attribute merely to the fact that her dad is standing right there, though I think that factors into it. Um, it's, he's, he, he does the right thing to say no to that. Right, he is in that sense sparing her. Um, uh, uh, Patricia's asking if he returned her love, would that have would that not have been out of measure? Um, no, like had he said yes, she proposes marriage. If he's like, well, upon mature reflection, okay, let's get married. I'm going to let's I'm going to, you know, let's move back to France and get married and I'll never come back here again. And the Arthurian court can stand forever for me. Right. Um, had he done that? No, then I don't think that her love would have been out of measure. Right. When it was, you know, in that moment of test right at the in their final parting, she does go too far. Right. She does propose, David, as you say, something which would have been sinful had he said yes. And again, that's, that's, I think, a measure of how far out of measure her love was and the fact that it's killing her. But again, she, um, uh, she, she doesn't have the might. She doesn't have the strength. Um, yeah. Um, 
Carrie, that's a really interesting thought. Carrie says she presents her belief, right, in the words that Lancelot should have seen to be the rescue, uh, to put him back on track of his repentance and the promise that he made on the quest to stay away from Guinevere. Yes, like, had Lancelot heard this, right? Had Lancelot been here? Like, he should recognize what Bors very indirectly suggests to him. It really is a possibility, the opportunity for redemption for him, right? Elaine is an opportunity for redemption for Lancelot. Really? She is... um, she is his, uh, really his last chance. Um, as we see, things are going to go over the cliff pretty soon after this. Um, look at the evidence of the body. Let's do some spiritual forensics here. So she gives the instructions about how to put my body on the boat. This is uh, this is uh, uh, Anne Shirley's favorite part. Put my body on the boat, and 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 and, and, and I'm going to dictate a letter. Put the letter in my hand, right? And then the boat washes up at Camelot, and uh, uh, so everybody goes out to view the beautiful body, the beautiful corpse, right? The be- the the body of the beautiful damsel which has washed ashore here uh, at Camelot, and so the king took the queen by the hand and went thither. Than the king mad the barget to behold fast, and than the king and the queen went in with certain connectors with them, and there he saw the firest woman lie in a rich bed, covered under her middle with many rich clothes, and all was of cloth of gold, and she lie as she had smiled. Than the queen espied the letter in her reeked hand, and told the king. Than the king took it, and sighed. Now am I sure this letter will tell us what she was and why she is come hither. Now, by the way, what um, um, what do we notice here? What should we be remembering? Beautiful dead girl washing up on shore in boat. What should this put us in mind of? Yes. She is the Lady of Shalott. She is. This is, of course, scene is going to be made much more famous uh, by Tennyson later on uh, in his poem. Yes, Carita Percival's no, not lost Arthur Percival's sister. Absolutely, Percival's sister, uh, uh, the uh, the virgin sister of Sir Percival, who gives her blood to save the undeserving lady, uh, and then dies and is put in. Is she instructs them to put her corpse in a boat, and the corpse washes up, uh, uh, you know, at the appropriate place and everything. Yes, we should be remembering that other beautiful virginal young damsel uh, who also recently washed up in a boat. Okay. So Than the king and queen went out of the barget, and so commanded a certain... Uh, yeah, to wait upon the barget. And so when the king was come to his chamber, he called many connectors about him, and sighed that he would wit openly what was written within that letter. Than the king brought it, and made a clerk to read it. And this was the... Uh, was the... I think that's not right. Can somebody look that up? Which is the... I think it's... What he's saying here is this is the substance of the letter. He's not... Maurer is not promising. This is a direct quotation. Um, uh, okay. 
uh, most noble knight, my lord Sir Launcelot. So her letter is addressed to Sir Launcelot. Most noble knight, my lord Sir Launcelot, now hath death made us two at debat for your love. And I was your lover, that men called the fire maiden of Astolot. Therefore unto all ladies I mock my moan, yet for my soul ye pry and bury me at the lest, and offer ye my mass penny. This is my last request, and a clean maiden I died, I tuck God to witness, and pray for my soul, Sir Launcelot, as thou art perilous. Um, Intent. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, David. Uh, this is the intent of the letter. Again, it's Maori's paraphrasing, right? He's not quoting uh, the exact thing. Um, I was your lover, that men called the fair maiden of Astolat. Therefore, unto all ladies I make my moan, right? I, I, that is, I'm, I'm going to complain me, as she was saying she was doing, right? She's going to protest. Um, she's not going to be silent, She's going to make the situation known, right? Um, and she and, and I love now hath death made us two at debate for your love. Um, so, Karita, I know that you were. Uh, upset with Lancelot for offering her money. The best support for that, if, uh, in my mind, the best support from the text for the reading that says Lancelot is being a little gauche at the least, right, by offering her money, the best support for that reading, in my opinion, is her reference to her mass penny, right? Um... Bury me at the least and offer ye my mass penny, right? You wanted to give money to me, Lancelot? Give my mass penny. Uh, that's the money that you can... This is really the only money that is... Uh, you offered to pay a thousand pounds a year if I would go and be happy with somebody. You offered to pay me off with a thousand pounds a year. Uh, no, that's not going to work. I, I'll, I'll come cheaper than that. Right. Um, if I can't have you, the only thing else I can have is death, and uh, that will be cheaper. <laughs> right. Uh, just pay the mass penny. Um, anyway, um, I mentioned spiritual forensics. Did you, did you catch it? What is the state of Elaine's soul? We don't get the full smoking gun, but it's pretty clear, nevertheless. Um, she isn't decayed, but I don't think it's been too long, right? Um, it, it may well be her preservation. I mean, like, a Percival sister was preserved after quite a long sea voyage, right? So that was miraculous. Yeah, her smile. Her smile. She lay as she had smiled in death. Her corpse is smiling. That's a really good sign. Um, she is... We saw her final speech, right? Her final confession. She was content in her death, right? In a sense, she's not content in that she's still, like, moaning, right? She's still complaining. She wants to, she wants to make this known. Um, but 
uh, she is not ashamed, right? She does not die in misery. Her soul is not, she does not die in guilt. Um, yeah, she doesn't get the last laugh, but the last smile. Exactly. Um, she dies and she dies well. Her smile on her corpse is the number one. I, I, she would not look like this. Her corpse would not look like this if she were a suicide. I feel pretty confident about that. Um, uh, based on things that we've seen. Exactly, David. There's no foul stench coming from her, right? Um, as came from the corpse of that Paynim knight. Remember that that uh, um, that ironically Sir Palamides killed. Um, yes, yes. Um, she took the adventure that God sent her, and she died innocent. She died without comprom- without compromising in act, right? Briefly in proffer, but not in act, her virtuous love. And we do get from her an example of... Um, uh, we, we do get from her an example of good love, and more important, her belief about good love, which is important uh, for the discussion we're about to have. Um, but... Um, yeah, James, great point. That word peerless, as thou art peerless, is really interesting, right? It kind of looks like perilous, uh, uh, which I think is an accident. I don't think she's saying he's dangerous because he goes around killing ladies. I mean, it's kind of apt. It's like so apt that it's really tempting, but I don't think that really works. Um, peerless, of course, is what she means. She's like, since... Uh, since you are peerless, right? Since you're a really virtuous guy, you should totally be willing to pray for my soul, right? Um, I know that you'll do the right thing. Pay my mass penny and say prayers for my soul uh, in purgatory because you're not only a good guy, you're a peerless guy. You're a really good guy. Um, but James, that's a really... I hadn't thought of that reading. Um, peerless... Uh, Maybe that's like sort of an additional meaning on top of it um, that also, as James points out, she loved no one else. Right. In her heart, he was absolutely peerless. He had no peer uh, in her heart. Um, that is certainly true as well. Uh, that, that is uh, that's interesting. I like that. All right. Well, but of course, this brings about the reconciliation of Lancelot and Guinevere. Right. After Guinevere sees her body. She's like, oh, well, she seemed nice, <laughs> right? Uh, and But more important, it's not just like, oh, she's dead, so I don't have to worry about her anymore. The fact that Lancelot left her, right? The fact that she is making her moan, Elaine, that is, um, posthumously. The fact that she actually did die for Lancelot's love shows, well, I guess Lancelot wasn't actually unfaithful, right? Uh, so she accepts him back. Um, Arthur's Commentary. Lancelot comes along. They show Lancelot the body in the letter. This is Lancelot to Arthur. My lord Arthur, wit you well, I am reeked heavy of the death of this fire lady, and God knoweth I was never causer of her death by my willing, and that I will repent me unto her own brother that here is, Sir Levine. And I will not say nigh, said Sir Lancelot, but that she was both fire and good, and much I was beholden unto her, but she loved me out of measure. 
Don't you hate it when people do that, Lancelot? Sir, sighed the queen, ye meeked have showed her some bounty and gentleness which meeked have preserved her life. Guinevere seems to acknowledge, you know, this could have gone a different way, right? Madam, sighed Sir Launcelot, I take that sentence by, Sir La by Guinevere, by the way, to be an invitation to Launcelot, right? Tell me why you didn't, right? Explain how this came about. There's a right answer to this, and I'm hoping to hear it, Launcelot. Madam, sighed Sir Launcelot, she wold none otherwise be answered, but that she wold be my wife, other else my paramour, and of these two I wold not ground her. But I proffered her for her good love that she showed me a thousand pound yearly to her and her iris, to wed any manner of knight that she could find best to love her in, in her heart. For madam, said Sir Launcelot, I love not to be constrained to love. For love must only arise of the heart self, and not by none constraint. Well, that's an interesting answer, right? So he kind of gives the right answer. I, I, I wouldn't do it. I, I, I would not be unfaithful. I could not give her my love, Guinevere. I just couldn't do it, right? For madam, he says, I love not to be constrained to love, for love must only arise of the heart self and not by none constraint. I couldn't force myself to love her. I couldn't love her just out of gratitude. I couldn't love her just because she loved me and she kind of deserved to be loved. Love has to arise from the heart itself. Hers did. That's exactly how she characterized her love. I mean, Elaine's love, right? Um, Love can't arise by any constraint. There seems, though, a um, second meaning to that, right? Um, she, Guinevere, has been trying through her actions to constrain Lancelot, right? In her act, in her banishing him again, right? This is the second time now uh, she's banished him from the court. Um, the way she's tried to punish him and stuff. I think this is also a gentle chiding of Guinevere, right? My love arises from the heart itself, right? And because, you know, what he doesn't say is because of my love for you, I couldn't love. He says I couldn't love her, right? He doesn't say why, right? She knows why. And he talks about the love arising from the heart itself, but he's also, I take that last sentence to be a very gentle rebuke of Guinevere. Stop playing the games, Stop with the games. Stop with the jealousy. Stop trying to keep me to like when you when you see a situation where some beautiful young lady named Elaine is loving me. Stop with the stuff, right? Stop with trying to keep me and get me and and get just d relax. My heart arises from the love itself. Let's stop going there. And the king pipes up. That is truth, sir sighed the king, and with money knictus, love is free in himself, and never will be bound, for where he is bonden, he loseth himself. A very interesting statement by King Arthur. With many knights, love is free in himself. 
free in himself echoes Lancelot's only arise in the heart self, right? <clears throat> Love is free. It, it, it is spontaneous. It is not constrained, right? It is not purposeful. It's not, you don't set out to love somebody. You don't uh, force your, try to force yourself to love somebody. With many lo- nights, love is free in himself and never will be bound. For where he is bounden, he loseth himself. Now here's, what's the antecedent of the he? Is it the night where the night is bound, bound in love, the knight loses himself? Or is it love, where love is bound, it loses itself? I think that the second one is the primary meaning there. Love is, the, was, is certainly is the more recent antecedent, right? Where love is constrained, it dies. That's a truism. Uh, that's a traditional saying. Um, if love is constrained, love will die. So here's Arthur giving the stamp of approval to the thing that Lancelot has just said to Guinevere, right? Oh, that's absolutely true, Lancelot. Um, where love is constrained, it, it, it loses itself. Love can't survive when it is bound, when it is constrained. But the ambiguity of the he there I find interesting, Right for where he is bound, if the he is the knight, right where the lover is bound, he loses himself. There's like a double meaning there, right? Love must be free, or else it fades and dies and loses itself. Where the lover is bound, is constrained by love. He sometimes loses himself, doesn't he? Sometimes Lancelot, doesn't that sometimes happen? Hasn't that been known? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian, I do think that he missed the subtext here. It is possible, however, to do a reading. One can do a clueless Arthur reading here. That totally works, right? Um, and it's a very attractive reading in some ways. I, that is to say, it, 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 it fits really well, and one can easily... It, 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 it makes things go pretty well if you imagine an Arthur who is dopey here, right? And just and everyone else is like, oh, I can't believe he's just said that. However, I think we can imagine a slightly more cunning Arthur who intends a double entendre here, who is issuing a who is responding to... So Lancelot is sort of speak, doing doublespeak, right, in a sense. He's saying sort of one thing on the surface, which Guinevere knows to mean something else. Is Arthur's response to that something which means one simple thing on the surface, but which also could be understood to be a warning of something else? Um, be careful, because where you're bound, you could lose yourself, right? Let's... Uh, um, does he, in fact, pick up on the second meaning between Lancelot and Guinevere, and is he warning them? That is a possibility, I think, here. Let's uh, keep going. Um, Guinevere, however, does not seem to be fully getting the memo. We don't see... Once again, I think we can see clear evidence of Guinevere lagging behind... 
uh, as far as the whole virtuous love thing. Uh, we've seen her lagging behind uh, sort of morally, spiritually, ever since the quest for the Holy Grail, certainly. So there's this other joust that's going to be made, right? This other big tournament that's being called. And the cry was mad that the die of justice should be besides Westminster upon Candlemas die, whereof many Knictas were glad, and mad them ready to be at that justice in the freshest manner. Than Queen Guinevere sent for Sir Launcelot and sighed thus, I warn you that ye ride no more in no justice, nor tournament is but that your kinsmen make know you, and at thy justice that shall be ye shall have of me a sleeve of gold, and I pray you for my sack to force yourself there that men may speak you worship. But I charge you, as ye will have my love, that ye warn your kinsmen that ye will bear that die the sleeve of gold upon your helmet. Madam, sighed Sir Launcelot, it shall be done. So... Guinevere says, okay, Mr. I bear damsel's sleeves now, right? Uh, it's oh, It sounds like she's still, it still rankles that he has only ever borne one damsel's token into a tournament, and it was Elaine, right? The dead chicks. Um, so she, like, insists that he wears her token. Okay. This is like an undisguise, right? I mean, first of all, the whole Lancelot's never worn a damsel's token, so no one will guess it's him. It's that, that disguise has been blown, right? That's not going to work anymore. And he wore the red sleeve on his... It was Elaine's sleeve was red, right? Red, which is associated with, uh, with, with love, with passion, um... She's like, no, wear my gold sleeve, right? She gives him a cloth of gold sleeve to wear. Cloth of gold, which is associated with royalty, right? So I'm going to wear a lady's sleeve, which looks like a royal lady's sleeve on my head. I mean, Guinevere. It's worse than undoing the, um, the whole disguising thing that he was doing. So we're straight back on the highway to slander again. Um, okay, go ahead up here. Now, this is a test. Are you ready for your exam? Lancelot's getting ready. He's resting up, right, for the great tournament. So he's sleeping out by a well in the woods, like you do. So at that time, there was a laddie that dwelled in that forest, and she was a great hunteress, and daily she used to hunt. And ever she bore her boch with her, and no man went never with her, but always women. And they were all shooters, and could well kill a deer at the stalk or at the trest. And they daily bare bowes, arrowes, hornes, and wood knevas, and many good doggers they had, both for the string and for a bat. So it happened the laddie, the huntress, had abatted her dog for the, for the boch at a barren hind. And so this barren hind took the flicht over heathes and waters, and ever this laddie and part of her women costed the hind and checked it by the noise of the hound to have met with the hind at some water. And so it happened that that hind 
come to the same well thereas Sir Launcelot was, by that well, sleeping and slumbering. And so the hind, when he come to the well, for hit she went to soil, and there she lie a great while. And the dog come after and unbecast a boat, for she had lost the very perfect fute of the hind. Reeked so come that laddie, the hunteress, that canoe by her dog, that the hind was at the soil by the well, and thither she come straight and shot at the hind, and so she overshot the hind, and so by misfortune the arrow smote Sir Launcelot in the thick of the buttock over the barbies. Juan Sir Launcelot felt him so hurt, he whirled up woodly, I bet he did, and saw the laddie that had smitten him, and when he, when he knew she was a woman, he sighed thus, Laddie, or damsel, or whatsoever ye be, in an evil time bar ye this bow, the devil mad you a shooter. So, um... This is uh, an awesome scene, right? Uh, <laughs> this is just fantastic in so many wonderful ways. Um, so, um, this is a this is a test. What just happened? What do we do with this passage? Note a couple things. First, this passage bears no fruit of any kind in the plot of this story. Lancelot is upset about being shot in the buttock, right? He's got a wound six inches long and six inches deep in his buttock. And it's emphasized, right, he's particularly upset about this because he can't sit in the saddle, right? I mean, it's, it's, this is like the worst wound he could have received, right, as far as disqualifying him from the tournament is concerned, right? <laughs> Karina, you're right. It's not like there's a good time to get shot in the buttock, right? Um... So what is the consequence of him being shot in the butt by the Lady Hunter? I mean, he's trying to get ready for this tournament. So what happens in the tournament? You remember? What is the consequence of this action? Nothing. Nothing. Lancelot, in fact, still competes in the tournament. And, like, you know, uh, takes down 50 knights in this tournament and wins the prize. There are no consequences. That's interesting to me. Because, first of all, a big deal is made of the consequences. Like, now I can't be in the tournament because of this stupid wound. Except he does go in the tournament. Right? Remember, almost exactly the same thing happened to Sir Tristram. Remember when he was going to fight Sir one of the times he was going to fight Sir Palamides, when he first overheard Sir Palamides making his complaint about La Bellizo, so he finds out for the first time that, uh, you know, like being the last person in England to discover that Sir Palamides was in love with La Bellizo, um, and he, 
um, so he challenges him to a fight, and then of course he can't get there because he gets shot by a hunter too, right? But and he can't show up, also by a well, James. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we've seen this kind of thing, exactly this kind of thing happen before. And remember, as I've argued before, Tristram and Isolde—they are like the warm-up act for Lancelot and Guinevere. Almost everything that happens to Tristram and Isolde is relevant to one or the other of the scenes of Lancelot and Guinevere later on. So. This time, there's no plot consequence. He goes on with the tournament. It's as if this entire scene were completely superfluous. It has no impact on the plot, other than to be kind of funny. <laughs> Door stroke, I agree. They really probably should put up warning signs at Wells. Yeah, yeah, uh, kind of dangerous. So what do we do with this passage? We have had some training, right? We've all been through the quest for the Holy Grail now. This, I would argue, this scene should set up some flags, right? We should, um, I, alarms should be going off here. A lady hunter? That's weird, first of all. And it's described as weird, right? A big deal is made about this. It's this lady huntress, which is repeated several times. Lancelot comments on it. Lottie or damsel or whatsoever ye be. Um, yet why all of a sudden do we have this? And I agree, it's not Artemis. It's a knockoff of Artemis. That's exactly what it is. Um, uh, uh. This should set off our, our allegory flags. Okay. In courtly love literature, hunters who hunt with bows are a major thing. Um, they are a major thing because it is one of the primary images of the god of love. Right? Who's the god of love? Everybody knows who the god of love is, right? Cupid is the god of love. And Cupid has a bow. Right? Now, if when I said that, if when I, when I said Cupid and his bow, if you immediately thought of a fat little naked baby with cute little wings and a little gold bow shooting, forget it. That has not been invented, okay? Uh, sometimes Cupid is talked about as a mischievous boy in classical, like you, can, you can get Roman stuff about that. Um, it's a bit, that, 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 that visual image that you probably got in your head when I mentioned Cupid and his bow is a Renaissance image. It's not a medieval image. Um, the god of love in medieval romance and courtly love tradition is terrifying. He is a hunter who shoots with a longbow. Um, and when you are hit by Cupid's arrows, you know it. Um, they, uh, they, the visual representations of this, you've got big, huge arrows sticking out of people and blood flying everywhere. Um, 
it is he stalks and chases you and you run in fear uh, the god of love is not cute and nothing to be messed with he is kind of terrifying he is a hunter he hunts with a bow um, and when he hits you um, you are uh, you become his servant you become his slave um he doesn't usually hit you in the buttock, however. He usually hits you in the eyes. Um, that is, of course, where the uh, arrows of the god of love enter. Uh, they, uh, they hit you... He, he, he hits you right in the eye with an arrow, and the, it pierces right down into your heart through your eye, because that's what happens. Um, uh, Lancelot... So... This scene, on the one hand, seems sort of familiar, like we kind of know where we are, right? Um, <laughs> Dorstruck says those arrows make him make him think of the grassy knoll. Uh, yeah, something like that. No, it's it's just it's an allegory, right? It's allegory. Um, it's not forensics; it's allegory. Um, on the one hand. This seems familiar, but also weird. Lancelot is the victim of love. We just talked, like, we just talked about Lancelot's being constrained in love. Love being free. Love not being constrained, not being bound by love. And love not being bound. Well, except that's what the whole courtly love tradition is about, right? You being bound by the god of love. You being dominated by the god of love. You are victimized by the god of love and made his servant. You swear fealty to the god of love because you can't help yourself once he sinks his arrows into you, right? So then we get this hunting scene. Uh, with this elaborate hunting scene. Um where he is shot by an arrow from a hunter who's stalking in the woods. Okay. Kind of sounds like the god of love here, except it's a lady hunter. It's not the god of love. And you guys who are thinking of Diana, we should use the Roman name because that's what we would use in the Middle Ages. Um, You're thinking of Diana, right? The virgin goddess. And you should be. Because she absolutely sounds like Diana. There is no coincidence there. Um, I absolutely... like there's, We are... I'm 100% convinced we're supposed to be thinking of Diana here. Right? So, we have this irony. Right? It's just like being stalked by the god of love, except he's being stalked by Diana, not Cupid. But wait, who's Diana again? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Christy was just suggesting that Lancelot obviously needed to turn the other cheek. Yes. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> True enough. Anyway, who's Diana? Who's Diana? A.K.A. Artemis. Who is she? In a word, what is the, what is the, 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 the one single word we should associate with Diana? Virginity, yes, virginity, absolutely. Um, she's the goddess of virginity. 
So he's being stalked in the woods, not by Cupid, but by Diana. Or a Diana-ish figure, right? A figure who seems to be, is, is, whom we inescapably associate with Diana. And she doesn't hit him in the eye. She hits him in the butt. A little bit more intimate. A good deal more embarrassing. Um, yes, Carita, she is famously not... The, she is the goddess of not love. Exactly. Exactly. He is struck by an arrow of chastity in the butt while he's lying by this. Which arrow is theoretically supposed to make it hard for him to enter this tournament with Guinevere's sleeve on his head? Yeah. Um, But wait, there's more. What was she aiming at? The Lady Hunter? Do you notice anything interesting about that? What's she hunting? A doe, Stephen, yes. She's hunting a deer, a doe, a deer, a female deer, right? A hind. Hind is the opposite of heart, right? A heart is a male deer, is a boy deer, a hind is a girl deer, but wait, there's more. She's not just any old hind. What else do we know about her? Yes, David. She's a barren hind. Now, I presume that the lady huntress, who is an ex- obviously an experienced huntress, right? And I'm not even going to get into all of the... There's a lot of technical vocabulary. Sir Tristram would love these paragraphs, right? And I'm surprised we didn't get another little tribute to Sir Tristram, who invented all the terms for hunting, because we get a bunch of them in these paragraphs, right? Um uh, like how she abated her dog. I mean, anyway, all of these things are hunting terms. We don't have to worry about that. At least I'm not worried about that too much because I don't know them that well myself either. But this lady is an experienced huntress, right? And so presumably she can tell at a sight that it's not just a hind, but it's a barren hind. Presumably because at this season of the year, if this hind were not barren, she would have a fawn with her. So she doesn't have any fawns with her. She's, she, she has no babies with her, and so she's called a barren hind. Gosh, Carita, you're right. You know who else doesn't have babies? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Guinevere also has no ba- Gosh, oh, the word barren just kind of slipped in there, didn't it? My goodness, like, talk about the elephant in the room that no one has talked about over the entire history of the Arthurian court, which is arguably pretty important, right? Um, okay, yeah. Um, she's shooting at this barren doe. There's this barren doe that she is taking, and she misses the barren doe and accidentally hits Lancelot in the butt instead. So he's hit in the butt by the arrow of an arrow of chastity associated with chastity via Diana the, from the Lady Huntress, which was originally aimed at a barren hind who 
did what by the way why what how did this come to be what why why is why is Lancelot's butt in the general direction that this Lady Huntress is shooting at? Because the Baron Hind has gone to ground by the same well that Lancelot is in, right? So what, what image do... Lancelot is lying next... He's asleep, right? Poor Lancelot. has no idea what's going on here, right? But the Baron Hind comes and snuggles down next to him, right? She goes to Earth where Lancelot is already lying there sleeping. So we actually get, just in case we missed the Baron reference and the Hind reference, we get this image of Lancelot and the Baron Hind lying together by this well. And she shoots at the Baron Hind and misses and hits Lancelot in an embarrassing, but not just embarrassing, in a suggestive location, right? She shot Lancelot's hind. Well, yes. I guess she didn't miss the hind after all, did she? Um, Yeah. um, So what do we do with this? Again, this bears no fruit as far as the plot is concerned. Once Lancelot gets into the tournament, yes, it's kind of a testimony to how tough he is, right? He did all of this, these wonderful deeds at the tournament, you know, with a big old arrow wound in his buttock, just like he did all of those deeds at the previous tournament with Sir Bors's spear, you know, sticking out of his kidneys. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yes. There's that. Um, But I think we should be a little wary post-Holy Grail, right? Um, An allegory is being enacted here before us. Um, The Arrow of Chastity has certainly missed Guinevere, (laughs) right? There's no question that Diana overshot, right? If she was aiming at Guinevere, she missed. Um, Guinevere is not on board with that, right? And Lancelot gets hit. And he gets hit in a way which is, seems calculated to interfere with his nightly carryings on at the tournament, which are also associated with this continual thing with Guinevere and her sleeve on his head. Um, yeah. The devil made you a shooter. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I don't think so. Right. He could try crossing himself, but she's not going to vanish. She's not Satan. Right. We've seen Satan in the form of a lady before, but that's not her. That's not, that's not, that's not the fiend. Right. Um, yeah. But if it's an arrow of chastity, this is a good sign. We'll come back to this. Um, I'm going to do two more slides. It's getting a little bit late, but I'm going to do two more slides because these two slides are super, super important. Um, I told you before that 
I, I, I published an article on this section of Maori before. This passage is this really sort of the centerpiece of my argument. One of the things that led me to write this article that I wrote was I felt like almost everybody who was reading Maori was not paying attention to this passage. This passage is huge. Um, at the beginning of the Night of the Cart section, as Guinevere is going maying with the Queen's knights, right? There are those ten knights who are going out with her maying. Um, so they're going out unarmed, right? Just to, like, have picnics uh, in the woods um, and enjoy the spring. Uh, the narrator, Maori's narrator, does something he has never done in 700 pages, right? Well, 650 pages in this edition. Um, he goes on this really long digression, right? He gets preachy all of a sudden, right? And it goes on and on and on. And I felt at the time, and I still feel, that um, a lot of people... Um, to kind of start, like, their eyes start glazing over when they're like, okay, right, yeah, the, the month of May, hooray for the month of May, okay, uh, let's move on. I hope that this passage jumped out at you as at least a little bit weird, if nothing else, right? It should sound different. When have you ever seen Mallory's narrator to do a whole page? Remember that how... Far we've had to hunt to try to find the cues from the text to tell us, like, what is he valuing and what is he not, right? And occasionally he'll give us a thing, a sentence, right? Sometimes in dialogue, sometimes from the narrator. But a, a treatise like this? Oh my goodness. Okay. And thus it passed on from Candlemas until after Easter that the month of May was come. When every lusty heart beginneth to blossom and to burgeon. For, like as trees and herbis burgeoneth and flourisheth in May, in likewise every lusty heart that is any manner of lover springeth, burgeoneth, buddeth, and flourisheth in lusty deeds. For it giveth unto it, that is the month of May, giveth unto all lovers courage, that lusty moneth of my, in something to constrain him in some manner of thing, more in that moneth than in any other moneth, for divers causes. For then all herbis and trees reneweth a man and woman, and in likewise lovers calleth to their mind old gentleness and old service, and many kind deeds that was forgotten by negligence." Okay, so let's um, parse this first. So let's do this one paragraph at a time. What, what has he just said about the month of May? What's he just said? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Let's make sure we clarify. What does lusty mean here? Um, we can define lusty from this paragraph. When every lusty heart beginneth to blossom into burgeon. In likewise, every lusty heart that is any manner of lover springeth, burgeoneth, buddeth, and flourisheth in lusty deeds. He is clearly not talking about lust 
in the modern sense, that is transgressive sexual desire, sinful sexual desire. How do we know? How can we be sure that he is not, he does not mean sinful sexual desire when he talks about lust? How do we know? What effects does the month of May have? Good, the flourishing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are two effects that he describes for the month of May, right? Two effects. One, which he repeats, both of them he repeats several times. First, and we can't overlook the simple thing, right? The month of May brings the trees and the grass and the flowers, right? Things grow by nature, right? It's what May does. It makes things burgeon and flourish, right? Flourisheth meaning like literally bears flowers, right? Um, Borgeneth, springeth, buddeth, flourisheth, right? He uses numerous times here, right? The physical action of spring, the flowering, budding, springing, growing, uh, of the natural landscape in spring, that is what the lusty deed is that flourish in the lusty hearts of lovers is like, right? Um, renewal. Yes, Brian, renewal is what it brings. Um, For than all herbis and trees reneweth a man and woman. Twice. Say. The month of May was come, when every lusty heart beginneth to blossom and to burgeon. Metaphor. For, like as trees and herbis burgeoneth and flourisheth in May, simile, in likewise, every lusty heart that is any matter of lover springeth, burgeoneth, buddeth, and flourisheth in lusty deities. For it giveth unto all lovers courage, spirit, that lusty moneth of my. For than all herbes and trees reneweth a man and woman. So the grass and the leaves renew men and women, like it acts on them directly? So close, he almost identifies the effect of spring on plants and the effect of spring on people, right? First he uses the, as a metaphor, then he makes the simile even more explicit. Uh, he makes the comparison even more explicit through a simile. And then he states it as if it's an identity. Herbis and trees reneweth a man and woman. And in likewise, lovers calleth to their mind old gentleness and old service and many kind deeds 
that was forgotten by negligence. Kind deed is. Pun. Wordplay. Kind, what does kind mean? Anybody down with kind here? It means kind in the modern sense. Kind deeds, generous deeds, good deeds. But yes, also natural. Yes, kind. Kinda is the Middle English word for nature. Natura is the Latin. The English word is kind. Um, that word means nature. Kind means natural. Um, that pun on the two definitions of kind, of course, is famously the pun that Hamlet makes in his first line in the play, right? A little more than kin and less than kind. Um, uh, that the love of, you know, the, the his uncle is unnatural, right, is uh, the joke, that bitter joke that Hamlet is making in that line. Um, the deeds that are called back to the mind of lovers in the month of May are kind deeds, natural deeds, deeds that were forgotten by negligence. So in the winter, right, in the metaphorical winter, sometimes love can grow cold. People's hearts grow cold, right? Um, but May renews a man and a woman like it renews the herbs and trees. And in likewise, love, wise lovers, not just any lovers, wise lovers, calleth to their mind old gentleness and old service. Their love is renewed. Their gentleness, their service, their kind deed is that have been forgotten by negligence are renewed. We do have constraint, Right? We do have constraint. May constrains them to do this. For it giveth unto all lovers courage that lusty moneth of my in something to constrain him to some manner of thing more in that moneth than in any other moneth. Hmm. What does he constrain himself to? It's not love. Right? It's not that love is constrained. It's the opposite. The love is burgeoning and flourishing all over the place, right? Um, but he constrains himself in to some manner of thing more in that moneth than in any other moneth. Constrain yourself to call to mind old gentleness and old service. To do the right thing. To do good things. I would argue this paragraph should make us think of somebody. Somebody we just talked about earlier tonight. This sounds like Elaine and Elaine's confession. What was Elaine's belief? This is natural. My love is nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to repent of. God made me this way. <clears throat> I am an earthly woman. Why shouldn't I love an earthly man? That's how I'm designed. That's how I've been made. The narrator here says, yes, exactly. Just like the herbs and the trees and the flowers, right? 
we are made in certain ways, right? And it's good. Our hearts should be lusty, and our deeds should be lusty. And the month of May constrains us, right? Or brings us, gives us courage to constrain ourselves to some manner of thing. One of the most fascinating things about this paragraph is that it sounds like the opposite of Lancelot's promise in the quest for the Holy Grail. Don't return to your old love. Leave it behind. Give it up. And we're told that the month of May, these natural forces, right? The way that God has made human beings just like he made the trees and the flowers and the grass, right? We respond in certain ways. We do certain... And it's good. Notice that he emphasizes that there are good results for it, right? Um, with, with that wise lovers call to their mind old gentleness and old service and many kind deed is that was forgotten by negligence. The, the negligence was winter. That was bad. That was like a kind of moral death. This is life. Natural life. Kind life. Come again. Love is natural. Four. Oh, so, uh, more on that winter thing. For, like as winter rajur doth alway arras and defas green summer, so fareth it by unstable love in man and woman. For in many persons there is no stability. For we may see all day, for a little blast of winter's rajur, anon we shall defas and lay apart true love, for little or not, that cost much thing. This is no wisdom nother no stability, but it is feebleness of nature and great disworship, whomsoever useth this. So what is winter? If May is about the burgeoning and blossoming and flourishing and springing, right? Winter, just as winter destroys summertime, so fair hath it by unstable love. Unstability. Unstability is the problem. In many persons there is no stability. They're too changeable people. And we see it all day, right? There will be true love between two people and... Anon we shall deface and lay apart true love for little or not. That cost much thing. It, which means either that love which has been laid aside was super valuable, or there are great costs, there are great consequences to the laying aside of the true love. Either way, I think. This is no wisdom, neither no stability. Have you ever heard Maori's narrator talking like this? He's, he's preaching. He's not just digressing. He's preaching. This is no wisdom, neither no stability. But it is feebleness of nature and great disworship. Whomsoever useth this. Instability in love is a big deal. 
This is why, again, it's natural, it's good when the month of May constraineth you, right? Or rather, brings you courage so that you may constrain yourself to some manner of thing, like the calling to mind old gentleness and old service. Look, instability happens, right? In many persons, there is no stability, right? It's known. It's common. But even if that happens, you can still recover. There can still be... There's, there's winter. The instability that is winter. Unstable love is like winter, but, but spring can come again, right? And you can call to mind many kind deeds that was forgotten by negligence before. Okay. Unstability. Yes, Michelle, exactly. Unstability was Lancelot's problem. That's what the hermits in the Holy Grail quest were saying. Your problem is unstability, man. But it was unstability towards God, right? The problem was he was too stable with his love for Guinevere and insufficiently stable for his love for God, right? Let's keep going. Therefore, like, no, still with the similes, right? He just keeps heaping the May similes in. Therefore, like as May moneth floreth and flourisheth in every man's garden, so in like wise let every man of worship flourish his heart in this world. Wow, that's a statement. In like wise let every man of worship flourish his heart in this world. First unto God and next unto the joy of them that he promised his faith unto. For there was never a worshipful man, nor a worshipful woman, but they loved on better than another. Earthly man, earthly woman, back to Elaine's believer there, right? And worship in armies may never be foiled, but first reserve the honor to God, and secondly thy quarrel must come of thy laddie. And such love I call virtuous love. Love is okay. Right? Love is not only okay. There is a positive model for love here. Right? It almost sounded for a while there. Right? I mean, like, for a while there, 500 pages ago. Lancelot's old model. Right? Where he seemed to be being like, no, no, no. Like... I'm leaving all that behind, right? Forget this love business. This courtly love business, is, it's all a sham, right? It's all shallow, and the whole paramours thing is super sketchy. No way, man. I'm going to leave all that beside. And Maori says, no. Lancelot was missing the point. There is virtuous love. What, are the, what is the nature of virtuous love? He's like, Elaine's right. This is going to happen. You can't help it. I mean, I love that sentence. There was never a worshipful man, nor a worshipful woman, but they love it on better than another. It pretty much happens, right? You're gonna fall in love with somebody. Um, like as May moneth floreth and flourisheth in every man's garden. In everybody's garden, spring comes. Nature has its way. Just as nature has its way in everybody's garden, nature has its way in everybody's heart. You can't help it. So what can you do? What are the things that you do? You've got to, first, and he repeats this twice, right? 
you've got to flourish your heart in the world first unto God. You've got to put God first. If you're not putting God first, then things are inordinate. Things get messed up, right? If you... If you're love, right, if your desire, if your lusty heart is leading you in wrong directions, right, sinful directions, if you find yourself committing adultery or tempted to commit adultery, you're not flourishing your heart first to God and next unto the joy of them that you promised your faith unto. You're switching the priorities there. And the same thing as a knight, right, Worship and armies may never be foiled. The worship, the true worship in arms that you can have as a knight, is again first reserve the honor to God, and secondly the quarrel must come of thy lady. Fight for your lady, first for God, second for your lady. That's how it works. It's good when that happens. It's a good thing. Such love I call virtuous love. Yeah, Jennifer is thinking about Galahad's warning about relying on the changeable world. Yes. Yes. Um, Good. Brian says, Lancelot claimed to be serving all ladies equally as a knight. But he couldn't by nature hold to that. Yeah, that was... That was wrong. Or unrealistic. That's not how it works. It's not just weak men and women who go this way. There was never worshipful man nor worshipful woman, but they love it on better than another. It's not like, again, only the, only the weak people are like this, right? And the good people rise above. No. Everybody. This is the way it is. He's not done. But nowadays, men cannot love seven nicht, but they must have all their desires. That love may not endure by reason, for where they both, where they beeth soon accorded in hasty, heat soon killeth, and reach so fareth the love nowadays, soon hot, soon cold. This is no stability, but the old love was not so. For men and women could love togethers seven years, and no liquorous lustis was betwixt them. And fun was love, truth, and faithfulness. And so in like wise was used such love in King Arthur's dies. Okay, so a little bit more about this, this virtuous love. Tell us more, Maori, about what, how virtuous love works and what it looks like. Nowadays, in the modern world... And of course, he's talking about his own times, right? When he talks about nowadays in the modern world, nowadays, virtuous love is super rare, right? Um, Men cannot love for a week, but they must have all their desires. It's all about hopping into bed. And you know what? If that's what your love is like, if you can't love for an entire week without, like, needing to hop into her bed, then your love's no way going to endure. For where they be soon accorded, hopping into bed together, and hasty, 
Heat soon killeth. And by the way, I love the... Um, remember that the punctuation is editorial. This is one of those fun moments. For where they beeth soon accorded, hasty heat soon killeth. Right? Uh, hasty heat cools soon. Right? Or where they be soon accorded and hasty in according, heat soon cools. Both of them kind of work, actually. Um, so, that this is no stability, right? This is how love is nowadays. Soon hot, soon cold. Remember, the big problem is stability. Faithfulness and stability in love is the primary element, right? Well, naturalness, I suppose, is the primary thing, but that's not to dis- to like describe its quality. That's just to tell you where it comes from, right? The quality of virtuous love is stable love. To be, again, going back to the previous paragraph, um, uh, uh, where was it? Yes, uh, to flourish your heart first unto God and next unto the joy of them that he promised his faith unto. Unto the joy of him that he promised his faith unto. You've got to keep your promises to the person that you swear your faith unto. Faithfulness, loyalty, stability in love. Nowadays, pff, it's not like that anymore, man. Modern love is not virtuous love. And how can you tell? Because those virtuous people are all hopping into bed with each other all the time. You can tell. You can tell. Um, that their love isn't virtuous by how hasty it is. And because what happens when you have hasty love? Cool soon, man. Soon hot, soon cold. This is no stability. But you know what? Back in the old days, people were different. There's been a moral decline. Everybody in the Middle Ages knows this. People used to be bigger, stronger, better, more virtuous in the old days than they are now. The world is in decline. Nowadays, you don't find virtuous love. In the old days, though, old love was not like this. Men and women t- could love together seven years, and no liquorous lusts was betwixt them. Seven years is to correspond to the seven nights, right? One week, right? They could love for seven years without liquorous lust. Not only could they love for seven years without hopping into bed... Right? They could love for seven years without licorice lustis. Licorice lustis, that's the bad kind of lust, right? Licorice means lecherous. They would not even experience lecherous thoughts back in the old days for like seven years. That's how far removed the old kind of love is from the modern love. And, and now he makes the final thing explicit. And so in like wise was used such love in King Arthur's dies. I have again and again asked you to bear with me uh, to indulge the possibility that Lancelot and Guinevere have not had sex yet. That they are not sleeping together that the words that Lancelot uses to describe their relationship is not euphemistic. 
this is the primary um this is the primary passage that convinces me that that's Mallory's intention that he wants us to read it that way the primary argument against that reading is to say well, well that's not really believable right i mean he says they've loved for each other for a really long time they must be sleeping together by now right and he addresses it explicitly if you think Lancelot and Guinevere must have been jumping into bed all these years. That's because you're a modern person, right? Who's judging by modern standards. And you've got to keep in mind, that's not how it was in the old days. As in King Arthur's days, right? People could... It was different back then, right? People could go for a long time without licorice lustis. This seems to me a very direct appeal to ask us to invest imaginatively. He's not asking us to relate. He's explicitly not asking us to relate. He's telling us what the story that you're reading, the people in the story that you're reading about, they're different from you and me. They don't think like we do. If you can't relate to it, that's good because they're different from you. Um... Imagine, though, what that might be like, right? Um, yes, Dolores Stroke, that's the really interesting question. Mallory is praising this non-hasty love, clearly. Virtuous love, right? It's okay. In lo- one of the evidences that it's virtuous, that it's okay, is that it's not associated with licorice lustis. Right? It's instead associated with faith and stability and all those other natural and kind things. You can't resist love. You can't not have love. You can't be like, everybody stop loving each other because it's bad. Right? That's like saying, hey, trees, grass, stop budding. Not going to happen. It's not the way God is. Elaine is, Elaine's belief is right. That is how, how God has made us. Right? And virtuous love is possible and is modeled for us by these romantic heroes of the old days, right? These amorous heroes of yesteryear, such as Lancelot and Guinevere. But Dolorstroke, as you say, he's presumably not praising Lancelot's relationship to Guinevere. We've certainly seen some good reasons to believe that we're dubious about it, right? One last paragraph. Wherefore? Because of all this stuff that I've just been describing about virtuous love, wherefore I liken love nowadays unto summer and winter. For, like as the tone is cold and the other is hot, so fareth love nowadays. And therefore all ye that be lovers, call unto your remembrance the moneth of my, like as dead Queen Guinevere, for whom I mark here a little mention that while she lived, she was a true lover, and therefore she had a good end. Guinevere! Guinevere, for whom I mark here a little mention that while she lived, she was a true lover, and therefore she had a good end. There is 
almost no part of that that is not mind-blowing. Um, mind-blowing. Guinevere? We're singling out Guinevere. If you had told me that this whole long discussion was building up to a praise of Lancelot's love, I'd be ready to believe it. Right? I still would be a little bit, I don't know, like, what about the instability towards God and the Holy Grail thing and going back on his vow and everything that seems bad, right? And not an example of virtuous love. But still, I'd be like, okay, you know, um, willing to listen to the idea that Lancelot's going to work this out, right? But Guinevere, she seems to have been missing the boat all the way along, right? What has there been virtuous in Guinevere's love? And yet... He singles her out. He makes the goes out of his way to make a little mention about Queen Guinevere and says three things about Guinevere. One, she was a true lover while she lived. She was a good lover. She had a good end. So she has a good spoiler, Guinevere has a good end. The third thing, she was a true lover, and therefore she had a good end. She's a true lover, she has a good end, and there's a causal relationship between those two things. Because she was a true lover, she has a good, she's going to have a good end. Now, we're not really in a place yet where we, we don't know, we, we're still a ways from her end, right? Um, so... We can't talk about this in too much detail yet, but I'm emphasizing this strongly because we need to keep this in mind. Um, now, Carrie, good. One thing that we can already see with Guinevere, other problems she may have. Inconstancy is not a problem with her. Inasmuch as stability in love is the number one thing being praised by Maori in this whole section, Guinevere's got that. She passes that test she aces that test, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Brian was thinking of the same thing, too. And that um, even when she has been jealous and things, she seems to be rebuking Lancelot for at least apparent instability in his love to her, right? Um, and she has some justification for concerns about his stability, he did kind of swear an oath to never see her again, um, which is not a good look when it comes to stability and love. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll come back to this, especially when we get to Guinevere's end, right? Um, but the f really fascinating thing is that this singling out of Guinevere emphasizing that she is a true lover, which is going to lead her to have a good end. This praise for uh, the love of the old days, the way that this sets us up, prompts us, insists that we read Lancelot and Guinevere not from the lens of our own assumptions and perspective and weaknesses, right? They're not just randy lovers hopping into bed with each other. They're old school lovers, Right, and then the general praise of love. Love is love is natural. Love is good. Um, 
all of this is his prelude to the incident when Lancelot and Guinevere finally commit adultery. Right? That's what this is all leading up to. Um, there is one point in this entire text when Lancelot and Guinevere unquestionably sleep together. And that's what is coming up. That is in this section. In the, it is in Sir Meliagance's castle that they absolutely, certainly, without question, sleep together. Um, and we are prepared for that by this passage. Um, anyway, join us next week when we uh, go on to look at that passage, um, uh, the, their actual encounter together. We're going to go quickly through uh, the section on the healing of Sir Uri, which I think is, a, is, uh, uh, is, is very important in understanding Lancelot's character. And then we will move through into the tragedy and downfall that is soon to come. Um, but um, anyway, um, thanks, everybody. I look forward to continuing our discussion next week uh, as we move through this. I just absolutely love this section of this book so much. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, and uh, I'll see you guys next week. Uh, so yeah, first half of the final book, the do- of the, uh, the 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 dolorous death of uh, of King Arthur. Uh, thanks everybody. Good night. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.